Welcome to the Reform Rookie Podcast. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. And so? Worthy vicar, do we find anything here of relics? By faith man lives and is made righteous, not by what he does for himself. Be it adoration of relics, singing of masses, pilgrimages to Rome, purchase of pardon for his sins, but by faith in what God has done for him already through his son. Dr. Martin, if you leave the Christian to live only by faith, if you sweep away all good works, all these glorious things you dismiss as mere crutches, what will you put in their place? Christ. Man only needs Jesus Christ. Thanks for tuning in to the Reform Rookie Podcast. This particular series will be covering all 32 chapters of the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith and also giving the biblical basis for holding confessions. We hope you benefit from this series. You can also watch the corresponding videos for each lesson on our YouTube page or by going to the Reform Rookie website and clicking on the Videos tab. Thanks again for listening and Semper Reformanda. Okay. Let's get started. We're, we're starting a new series uh, tonight, uh, and it's on the London Baptist Confession of Faith. And what we're going to be doing for at least a couple of weeks before we get into looking at the confession itself is doing an introduction uh, to the idea of confessions. And what I want to look at first is the biblical basis for confessions, and there's a, a series of, of questions that I want to ask. Firstly, I don't know if any of you noticed, on the rear of our bulletin is this statement. It's under, we have our purpose, then we have our doctrine. And if you look at, under doctrine, it says, the scriptures alone in their entirety are the only rule we have for faith and practice. But because of the increasing number of church groups who are drifting from the scriptures, we have committed ourselves to the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith as a guide to help express our convictions on the main points of Christian doctrine. We are firmly committed to the doctrines of grace, which exalt the glory of God and humble sinful man in the issues of salvation. That's on our bulletin, so people can read it every single week. Okay. Um, notice that on here, we, we, we declare ourselves to be a confessional church. We do so unashamedly, uh, so much so that we put it on here. If you're going to become a member in this church, you have to learn uh, the main uh, chapters. There's 32 chapters in the London Baptist Confession. Uh, but a lot, a lot of churches don't use confections, confessions of faith. And so the first question that we want to ask here, we want to talk about is there a biblical basis for confessions. And so here's some questions that are frequently asked. These are, we've just picked these questions up over uh, time that we've been at church. And these are some questions I'm going to ask and then answer briefly some of these questions. And then we're going to get into uh, some of the scripture. One, is the use of confessions merely pragmatic? I, I say that because notice in our bulletin it says, that because of the number of churches who are drifting from the scriptures, we've decided to use a confession. Is, it only, is that the only reason we use a confession? All right. 
is it's purely pragmatic because it works. And the answer, uh, okay, uh, the answer to that, to that first question is no, it's not merely pragmatic. If, if, it was, if we're merely using a, a, a confession because it works, we would be on shaky ground at best because we are concerned that whatever we do has a biblical basis. So just because a confession can do certain things positively for us, unless we have a biblical basis for us, we shouldn't use one. Okay? Pragmatism, a lot of unbiblical practices are being put forth in churches today uh, because they work. Quote, unquote, because they work. So just because something works doesn't mean that it's right. Okay? Uh, second question, doesn't every church have a confession? In one sense, yes, but in a broad sense, no. Okay, um, Most churches today across the United States are not confessional churches. They will have a statement of faith, which usually covers about one page, uh, sometimes a little bit longer than that. But some churches don't even publish a statement of faith. And so I, I've had people tell me, well, you know, we, we don't have a confession. And I said, well, there's your confession. There you have it right there. All right. There's a reason why we uh, have a confession of faith, one that is old as it is, two that it's as long, 32 chapters with, with multiple sections under each one. All right. So then that leads to the next question is, is there a biblical basis for the use of confessions? And the answer to that question is yes. That's what we're going to be examining this evening. We'll probably take up the whole, uh, the whole evening just on this question alone, because if there was no basis for a confession, then we would be hard-pressed as a biblical church to use them. Okay? Um, I do ask you to bear with me. This is the first time I've taught this particular course, so I'm not sure how the timing will, will fit. And, of course, I, as always, I do... Uh, anticipate that you'd have questions uh, as we go through. Another question. Doesn't the use of confessions undermine the principle of sola scriptura? Well, the answer to that would be yes, if the confession is placed above the scripture, because then that would be an abuse of, of scripture and ab an abuse of the confession. But here's the interesting thing. The case is usually the opposite. The churches that use confessions uh, biblically have the highest view of the scripture. Okay? Most biblical confessions, such as the 1689, the Westminster Standards, and many of the other Reformed confessions, uh, state that the confession comes under the authority of scripture. And in our case, in the London Baptist Confession, chapter 1 is of the, uh, of the Holy Scriptures. And as we go through that, which will probably be in a couple of weeks, you'll see how the confession clearly makes certain that we don't ever elevate the confession above the scriptures. All right. And then the last question before we begin, doesn't the use of confessions erode the doctrine of the liberty of the conscience? Well, this objection is usually put forth by those who have a low view of scripture anyway. Uh, they usually reject the biblical mandate for obedience as being legalistic, okay? And they, they put virtually all things as a matter of conscience. 
Uh, and that, is, that view is running rampant in the church today across America, is everybody says, well, you can't, don't, don't tell me, who are you to judge me? You know? And what they're doing is they're moving themselves out from under the authority of Scripture, and everything becomes a matter of conscience. All right? So with that in mind, those are just a couple of questions I thought I would start with. And what we'll do is we'll begin, firstly, with what is a creed or a confession? All right? And simply put, a confession is a statement of faith. A creed is usually a smaller, uh, more concise uh, confession. And what we would call a confession would be a, a, a larger, more comprehensive document. But they all fall under. So I'm, I'm going to use creed and confession interchangeably tonight, even though there is a subtle difference between them. All right. Um, I want to say this, too, because a lot of people mistake this. It's not a prayer, all right? Like we recite periodically in our church, we'll recite the Apostles' Creed, okay? That's not a prayer, all right? That is, it's a statement that is to be cleared and usually public and allowed, okay? What you are doing when you recite a statement of faith or a confession is you are stating what it is that you believe about God in the Bible, okay? So, it's a summary of the doctrine of the church. This is why it's so helpful to have a confession, because when you put the confession out there, before people ever come to your church, they know what it is that you stand for. When you have a church that has no confession, uh, you don't know what they stand for when you walk through the door. Okay? And that's, so having a confession is very important. Why don't more churches have confessions today? I'm going to give you a couple of quotations. Dr. Robert Paul Martin says this. He says, sadly, we live in a non-creedal, even an anti-creedal age marked by existential relativism, anti-authoritarianism, and historical isolationism. That's the age we live in. People do not want, people want to break with the past. They want everything new and improved and packaged that way as well. Yes, John. That's very true. You see, and especially if it has the name Baptist in it, how many churches are remo removing the name Baptist and removing the name church? This is not an entirely new concept, though, because here we have our good friend Horatius Bonar speaking in 1866. He said this, Every new utterance of skepticism, especially on religious subjects and by so-called religious men, is cheered as another howl of that storm that is to send all creeds to the bottom of the sea. The flowing or receding tide is watched, not for the appearance of truth above the waters, but for the submergence of dogma. To any book or doctrine or creed that leaves men at liberty to worship what God they please, there is no objection. But to anything that would fix their relationship to God, that would interfere, infer their responsibility for their faith, that would imply that God has made an authoritative announcement as to what they are to believe, they object with protestations in the name of injured liberty. I love the way those, those guy, old guys talked, huh? All right. So, but that's why you find out we, we are living in an anti-creedal age. So with that being said, 
Let's, we're going to go all the way back to the Old Testament. And what we would expect is, if confessions are biblical, you would expect to find them in the Old Covenant, right? Because we know there's a continuity between the, the two covenants, all right? And Deuteronomy 6 is considered by most theologians to be one of the earliest confessions. Not necessarily the earliest, but definitely one of the earliest confessions of faith. All right, now you have to remember, let's put this in context. Remember, whenever we look at, at portions of Scripture, you always want to make sure we get the context. What's the context for Deuteronomy 6 is Deuteronomy 5. Can anybody remember what the content of Deuteronomy 5 is? Very important. The Ten Commandments were repeated. All right, remember, it says, that's why the... The book, the fifth book of the Bible is called Deuteronomy. Why is it called Deuteronomy? Second giving of the law. Second, Deutero, all right, onomy, you know, coming from the law. So it's the second giving of the law. That's the context, all right? So now we come to Deuteronomy 6, and look at the first three verses. Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, uh, that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it. Now what's he talking about? He just finished re-giving the Ten Commandments. So that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God, to keep all his statutes and commandments which I command you all the days of your life, that your days may be prolonged. Again, remember, this all in the context of the Ten Commandments. And he says, O Israel, you should listen. Now, that's an important phrase. You should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you and that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. The context, again, Ten Commandments re-given. What is coming right after the book of Deuteronomy? Entrance into the land, the promised land. All right? Regiving of the law. If you obey the law, if you live well, then you can expect for blessings. And so Moses exhorts the children of Israel to heed the Ten Commandments. He tells them they should listen and obey. They would prosper. And then he gives them these verses. This is what comes next. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. There you have one of the earliest confessions, right there. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Okay? What is this known as? The Shema. The Shema of Israel. They were to confess the truth. That's what he's saying. This is something that they were to confess. All right. And what is the confession? This is the, one of the earliest confessions. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. In its purest and simplest form, that's a confession of faith. So if you want to understand what a confession is, there you have it. In its simplest, simplest form. All right. What is going on here? It's a summary of the Ten Commandments. Okay. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Isn't that a summary of the, of the Ten Commandments? All right. 
And this became, this, this Shema became an important part of Jewish culture. They were to recite the Shema every day, morning and evening. And in fact, in practice, what happened was they usually started with two benedictions, then they would uh, recite the Shema, and then they would close with two benedictions, morning and evening. Okay. And then in the subsequent to this, that's the Shema of Israel, it's a confession of faith. In subsequent verses, we find some of the uses of this confession of faith. All right. Now we're going to cover some of the uses of a confession in greater detail in subsequent lessons. But for, but for now, look at what they were taught. As a result, after they recite the Shema, after they give their confession of faith, we find that it was to be memorized, to be declared openly, and to be taught to children. All right? You shall teach them diligently to your sons, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. Here's a basis for catechismal teaching. What do we teach in a catechism? We teach the confession of faith, all right, to our children. They should be reciting it. We've gotten away from this type of teaching. We, oh, you know, oh, we don't want to catechize our children. Why? Catechism goes right back to the earliest days commanded by God. Teach these things to your children. And, and when and where? Regardless, when you sit down in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up, you should be teaching your children these principles so that no matter where they go, they can recite the confession of faith. Okay? All right? You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. What are we getting the idea about a confession. Is it something private that we keep our private worship at home? <laughs> Look what it says. Bind them on your, your hand and your head. Write them on the doorpost of your house and your gates. All right? <laughs> well, I was just going to say, obviously we know that the Jews took things sometimes too literally and too formal, and that's what they would do. They would write the Shema and a little piece of paper, put them in a little box, and put them across their head, and they were called phylacteries, all right? Right idea, not necessarily something that we need to do. The idea is what? That it's, fin it's in the heart, in your head and in your heart, all right? The confession, this confession, though, the confession of one God is at the very heart of the Jewish religion. Throughout all of, all of the, the history of Israel, no matter where you went, you would find that one God, we have one God. The Lord our God is one. All right? So much so that it was even incorporated into their architecture. Now, here's a, an interesting piece of information. One of the things that they would do is they were carried off into captivity or when they were overrun and by the various uh, Babylon, by the Medes and the Persians, by Greek, by the Greece, uh, by, by Rome, or if they were carried away into captivity, when they would erect, erect a structure, especially a synagogue, they would put one God 
in, in the local language right uh, on the doorposts or someplace in the architecture because that was the one thing that differentiated them from everybody else. Everybody else, polytheists, pagan gods, idolatry, and th they wanted to make sure that they had their statement out. So they took their confession so seriously that it was even put right into their architecture. That was their confession. So one of the things that we find is that this is so integrated with them that look what Josephus, everybody know who Josephus is? Josephus was a uh, historian hired by Rome, all right, but he was of Jewish origin. He says, in the confession of one God, all the Jews are united. This was something that was not uh, a debate. And in fact, the confession of one God was showing the difference between them and the pagan culture surrounding them. And in fact, uh, you've heard me say this before in another context, but one of the things that the Jews and the early Christians were, were charged with by the Romans was atheism. All right? You say, how is that? Because they rejected the pantheon of Roman gods and believed in only one God. They also didn't believe that Caesar was a god. And so they, the charge was leveled against them that they were atheists because they only believed in the one God of Israel. Okay? So, when Israel first entered the land of promise, they were continually seduced by cultures around them. But here is something, if you go through the history of Israel, as this Shema was ingrained in them, and later on when they returned from exile, you don't find them falling into the same sin. When they first got into the land, what were the sins that they would get involved with? Do you remember? What were they always being seduced by? The pagan gods. Idolatry. Remember, you know, they, they didn't tear down the high places. They were sacrificing their children. They were doing all, all the, the, the pagan rituals. And they were constantly being uh, rebuked by God and disciplined by God for that. Later on in their history, you find they lapsed into a formalism, but they were not committing the same, uh, they, they weren't seduced into idolatry. And one of the reasons for that was because they had this confession of one God. Okay, and if you go through the history, you'll see that that's in fact the case. So, the confession, the Shema, is what distinguished the Jews from everyone else, all right? So let's look now at confessions in the New Testament. We see, obviously, uh, with the Lord our God is one, we, we know that it um, was taught in the Old Testament, and in fact, the word confess is used 23 times in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, at least 23 times we find that it's used. Now, it's also used numerous times in the New Testament, all right? And there's, I'm, I'm going to put a, a couple up here, first using the noun version. What we find the word, the Greek word that's used for confession, all right? And it's pretty much the same word throughout the New Testament. Um, it can be used as a noun or as a verb, all right? 
Now it's interesting. Let me see here. The noun version addresses the act of confessing, but usually not the substance of the confession. All right, do you follow that? It, it addresses the act of confessing, uh, but not the substance. Let me show you what I mean. Here are some examples. Okay. 2 Corinthians 9.13, because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all. Notice, notice what it says. In that verse, you don't have, well, what are they confessing? That's not answered. Okay. It's the noun form, obedience to your confession. In other words, the noun is saying it's the act of confessing that it's talking about, which is a noun. All right. But notice, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession. All right. That's what Paul is talking to the to church in Corinth about, that they were being obedient to their confession. Let's look at a couple others. This is Paul, obviously, to young Pastor Timothy. In 1 Timothy 6, he says, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. All right. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate. Notice even Christ using a confession. Okay. Then let's look at a couple more. Hebrews 3.1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. I'll bet you've read these verses how many times, and it went right over your head that it was talking about a confession of faith. Hebrews 4.14, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Notice how many times. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. All right. Now, all of the above examples show the importance of holding to a confession of faith. That's what they are being commended for. Okay. Uh, the verb form is somewhat different. Usually when you get into the verb form, it starts to tell you about what's in the confession, all right? When the verb form, we find something is, is added, all right? The substance of the confession as well as the act of confessing. Here's one example. Romans 10, 8 through 10. Everybody knows this verse, these two verses, well, three verses, all right? But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith which we are preaching. That's the introduction to it. All right, notice what it, the word is near you, it is in your mouth. All right, what word? It's talking about the confession. All right, and what is the confession? That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Notice it's not only just that you are confessing something, but now we find out what is being confessed. Jesus as Lord. All right. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. Notice, what do you have here? The lordship of Christ. You have the resurrection of Christ. 
For with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. You have to confess with your mouth what? I believe in Jesus. Jesus is Lord. All right. We're talking about Jesus is Lord. And notice, with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness, your salvation must lead to righteous actions. All right. And this refutes that whole subject of lordship salvation that John MacArthur wrote about so many years ago. Okay. So, this is probably the most basic of Christian confessions in the New Testament. We have much more to say, but uh, this, is, this is talking about just a basic one, okay? Um, and in fact, what's the, what's the context for Romans 10? You know, what, you know what's right above this? Again, remember, we always want to keep in mind context. Yeah. And they never, arose, they never arrived at salvation, right? Why? Because they, they tried to do it by works. And then he goes into salvation by grace. All right? And here, and here we... Then that's how we get to this. Now, many theologians... Now, this you're going to find this interesting, especially since we are a Reformed Baptist church. Okay? You'd be surprised at how many theologians believe that this is talking about baptism. The confession with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, is what the bap person being baptized would confess in the early church. And so many people believe, many theologians believe, usually the Reformed Baptist ones, believe that this refers to specifically the confession made at baptism. Okay? Uh, and then and I'm going to show you why some of them would, would do that. All right. Again, this is one of the most basic ones. Remember the, the context, Jews seeking through works. Paul refutes that. Okay. Many theologians believe this confession is referring to believer's baptism. Okay. Now, Jim Renahan, that's Dr. Jim Renahan, who is the dean of our seminary down in Texas, uh, points to another confession referring to baptism, not the one in, in Romans 10. Look at this one. And I think you're going to see how this really makes sense. This is Paul writing to Timothy in his first letter. Remember, Timothy's a young pastor. All right. Remember what has gone on. Timothy had been under the instruction of his mother and his grandmother, and he had come to, by reading the scriptures, he had come to faith, all right, came to faith as a young man, all right, but flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession so to come, he's talking about the time that he made a confession in the presence of many witnesses. Jim is convinced that this is talking about Timothy's baptism because that's the time that he would stand publicly and make a confession and a profession of faith in Jesus Christ, doing it publicly and aloud. Isn't that just what we do here? When we have a candidate for baptism, they come in, 
They get into the tank, they read their profession of faith publicly in front of the entire congregation, in front of presence of many witnesses. So I think I, I'm very convinced that I think Jim Renahan is right. Now what I'm going to do now, I'm going to give you just a series of scripture references that all talk about confession. All right. This is a list of, of others. Now look, this is just a, a sample list. It'll be on here. I have it in my notes if you, if you don't want to take it down now. But look at John 9.22, Romans 10, 9 and 10, Philippians 2.11, 1 John 4.15, 1 John 4.2 and 3, Matthew 10.32, Luke 12.8, 2 John 7. All basically saying the same thing, talking about the acting, acting of confession. Now, we would also expect if, if somebody confesses the truth, that there are those who deny the truth. And one of the things that we find in the New Testament is the opposite. And that is the action of denying or renouncing the faith. So you have those, remember, two kinds of people in this world. Those who are in Christ and those who are out of Christ. All right? And we see, we see several things. In 1 John 2.23, we see the denial of Jesus as the Son. John talks about that. Denial of Jesus as Master, 2 Peter 2.1. Denial of our Lord and Master, Jude 4. Denial of Christ's name, Revelation 3.8. The denial of God, Titus 1.16. The denial of the Christian faith, 1 Timothy 5.8 and Revelation 2.13. All right. All of these are the opposites confessing. They are renouncing the faith. Now, I want to get back to what a confession is, and I'm going to give you a couple of quotations here from, from Dr. Jim Renahan, because he says it so well. Remember, the heart of what is the heart? He's, what he's really doing here, he's giving you the heart of what is a confession of faith. Confession is an open declaration of the Christian's relation to Christ. It's not just a statement of doctrine. Doctrine tells us who God is and what our relation to him is. And so a confession is an open declaration of the Christian's relationship to Jesus Christ. And Dr. Jim goes on further. He says it requires intelligent profession of Christ. It requires submission to his lordship. All right. Now I want you to notice those two concepts involved that he just talks about here. There's two concepts involved in confessing Christ. First, intelligent profession. You can see how this is most definitely geared towards believers who are confessing Christ. There has to be an intelligent profession. Secondly, a submission to his words. Professing Christ and then not submitting to his word is what? It's hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy. And, and one of the things we find out in scripture, that man is not a Christian. So you need both aspects of this. All right? By confessing Christ, you are devoting your life 
to him. Okay? Now, notice again, we're coming back here again, Romans 10, 9 and 10. Okay? Confessing with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead. I want, this is, remember we said this was kind of like the most basic confession in the New Testament. Notice something. Right. There is but, oh, here we go. In 1 Corinthians 8, 6, for, yet, for us there is but one God the Father from whom all things are, exist for him and one Lord Jesus Christ by whom all things, etc., etc. What does that look like? Yeah. Notice the similarity to the Shema which is exactly what we would expect because we understand the continuity of the Old and New Testaments. It just takes on a different form because of, of Christ, you know, coming in, into the world, all right? But, so what I want to do now, we've, had, we've got a few minutes left, and I think the timing is going to be work out just about right. I'm going to go through some of the early confessions in Scripture just to show you, and then we'll call it a night for there, and then in the next couple of lessons we're going to look at the history of confessions um, and then how we how do we get to the 1689 and why do we use that confession but those are for the the future all right so here's a few more early confessions in scripture all right for there is one God and one mediator also between God and man the man Christ Jesus notice the similarity again again you've probably looked at these verses how many times hundreds of times and you, if you're not looking for it, you're not going to see that th this is actually a confession. There is one God. Ephesians 4, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all who is over all and through all and in all. That's a confession of faith. That's what we believe. Now make, oh, now here, here we have 1 Corinthians 15. Why should everybody be familiar with 1 Corinthians 15? It's the gospel in a nutshell. Here we have it. It's the most definitive exegesis and explanation of the resurrection and the meaning of the resurrection by the Apostle Paul. Look, look what he says. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel. So this, we know it's coming. The gospel is coming which I preached to you, which you also received, and which you also stand, by which also you are saved. You can't be saved apart from the gospel, all right? If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now look at what he says. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. All right? Now there's four elements in the gospel as Paul makes it known here. This is the first two. First one, first Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That's the first element that Paul gives us. That he was buried, there's the second one. And that he was raised, there's the third. According to the scripture, then he appeared to Cephas to the twelve, there's the fourth. Notice, I like to call this the gospel with proofs. Why did they bury Christ? Because he was dead. That's simple, right? But it was necessary for him to be buried. Why? To prove that he died, because he had to die for our sins, okay? Then he rose from the, from the grave. 
He rose on the third day. How do we know he rose from the grave? What's the proof here? He appeared to Cephas, the 12. All right. 500 brethren at one time. You got all of this proof that he rose from the grave. So you got the proof of his death. He was buried. Proof of his resurrection. And also all the way down to appearing to Paul. That's the gospel. And notice it's a confession. The gospel is a confession. First Timothy 3, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I, hope, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of truth. That's going to come back up again. We're going to see that phrase. This is, this is an important verse, uh, looking at the, uh, the church as the pillar and support of truth. All right? By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. Oh, and, and here, in fact, I want to point this out to you. Look at this. Probably, if you look in your Bibles, after verse 16, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. Next series of phrases are indented and put in, a, in a, like a column. Whenever you see that, the translators are trying to tell you something. That this is special. It's, it's not just, okay? This is, this is by common confession. Look at what it says. He who was revealed in the flesh, what do you have there? The incarnation. Was vindicated in the spirit. Seen by angels. Proclaimed among the nations. Believed on in the world. Taken up in glory. That's a confession. And then, of course, this is the last one I'm going to look at. Look how good I am. It's just about 8 o'clock. Boy, pat myself on the back. This is the first time I've taught this class. I can't believe it. It's right on time. This, this portion of Scripture is considered by many either an ancient hymn that was sung by the church or, or, and or another confession of faith. Here you have the, the states of Christ built right into Philippians 2, 5 to 11. Another confession. So I hope you can see that as we've worked our way through this, that confessions is something that goes right back to the earliest of days. And right through the, the, the life of Israel, the early church, and as we'll see in future lessons, right through the history of the church, you're going to, we'll talk a little bit about some of the early creeds and confessions leading up to our, our own confession that uh, was formulated in 1689. Actually, that's not true. It wasn't formulated in 16, 1677, right? And we'll get into why, okay? Any questions on the biblical basis for confessions of faith? Is there a difference between confession and profession? Yes. A profession is what you, you can profess a lot of things. A confession has a very specific connotation talking about what we believe about God. That's what we're talking about. All right. We're not just talking about you confessing to having committed a crime or something. But in a biblical sense, it's, it's what is it that the Bible reveals about God that you have to confess in order to be saved. Would profession be like more, I guess more personal? Yeah. 
yeah. Any other questions? Okay. With that, Pastor Chris, if you would take over and we'll go into the prayer meeting section of our evening. You have been listening to the Reformed Rookie Podcast, where we aim to teach Reformed theology to beginners or rookies. Be sure to look us up on the web at www.reformedrookie.com, where you will find many more learning tools and aids to help you grow in your understanding of all things Reformed. And remember, Semper Reformanda. Dr. Luther, are you prepared to retract these writings? In some, I discuss faith and good works. If I were to retract these, I should be denying accepted Christian truths. Martin Luther, you have not yet answered the question. Will you recant, or will you not? Here it is. I am bound to my beliefs by the texts of the Bible. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not recant. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen.